Well, it is with great joy and excitement that I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter. Been promising for months now that uh, this was the next book that we were going to tackle together as a church, and the day has come. And I want to do something as we begin our study of 2 Peter that I normally don't do. Uh, in fact, I don't think I've ever done this before, but because of the shortness of this letter, it allows us to actually read, uh, rather than just the first couple of verses, but to read the entire letter and to give a sense of what it must have been like when uh, this letter was sent to the various churches throughout Asia Minor and uh, when they received a, a, a new letter from an apostle, uh, someone would get up and would read the letter in its entirety uh, to that congregation. And so I would like to do that this morning. In fact, I've been listening to Second uh, Peter being read through an app that I have called Dwell. Anybody have that app, the Dwell app? Um, I would highly recommend it. Um, it's just a small cost, but uh, their, their goal is to uh, let you uh, hear the Word of God uh, being read. And they say how that um, that's in the olden days, how most people, that was their only option. When there wasn't a copy of Scripture, they, they heard the reading of God's Word. And so they do a really good job of laying out uh, different uh, passages and different reading programs with different voices and different music backgrounds, and it's really well done. Well, I was surprised to see that it only takes 10 minutes to read through Second Peter. So do you got 10 minutes? What do you do in the next 10 minutes? Let's, let's read through 2 Peter. And by the way, I would encourage you as we begin this study to perhaps maybe this next week or the next few weeks, just take 10 minutes every day and just read through 2 Peter, uh, just so you familiarize yourself with this letter. And so I, I'm confident that you'll get a lot more out of our study if you're reading it uh, on your own as well. So let me read this letter to us this morning. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. 
I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitness of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves." Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteousness... That righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to study your word together. And I pray that as we dive into this um, new letter that the same spirit who inspired Peter to write this letter would enlighten us to understand this letter and, and enable us to apply this letter to our lives. And uh, Lord, that your spirit would empower me as the preacher to make your word understandable and applicable. And would you, by your spirit, enliven the listeners that they would be receptive and responsive to your word so that your word would accomplish your efficacious work in all of our lives, so that we could be uh, all that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the last few years, we've gotten used to hearing a new buzzword within evangelicalism called deconstruction. Deconstruction is used to describe the process that a person goes through when they begin doubting or questioning what they've always believed. 
And in an attempt to either reconcile in their minds what they've been taught, which appears to conflict with science, or perhaps distance themselves from the real or imagined abuses they've experienced in the church, or to discard the religious baggage of their Christian upbringing, they end up rejecting core truths of the Bible, and some even ultimately abandon the Christian faith altogether. I think a more accurate term for deconstruction is defection. Defection from the faith. Now let me say this. The Bible, particularly the Psalms, not only provides plenty of space for doubting and questioning, but describes how God meets us in our questions and in our doubts. God is not irritated or intimidated by our questions and our doubts. Based on the numerous examples in Scripture, honest wrestling with God and His ways is just a a normal part of the Christian experience. Consider Job or David, or Asaph, or Habakkuk, or in the New Testament, Mary, or Thomas, all of whom struggle to understand and and believe and make sense of certain things. Back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, there was a man uh, by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He was a a theologian and apologist, and he and his wife Edith, Edith opened their Alpine home in Switzerland to minister to skeptical travelers who would come there wrestling with hard questions about the Christian worldview, and he provided them a space. He provided them a forum to work through their uncertainties. But the contemporary deconstruction phenomenon that we are seeing in our day has taken on a life of its own. And it's really been fueled by the stories of high-profile pastors and and musicians who, ironically, God used to construct the faith of many of us, and they've deconstructed their own faith and publicly announced that they're no longer Christians. In fact, a, a popular hashtag now is exvangelicals. That's what they're calling themselves, exvangelicals. One perhaps most notable example would be Joshua Harris, who was a well-known pastor of a megachurch on the East Coast. He resigned um, as a pastor. He he recanted a number of books that he had written. Uh, He divorced his wife and now has become sort of a self-proclaimed deconstructionist guru. Uh, In fact, he even for a time had uh, some deconstruction course you could buy online to help you kind of work through your own deconstruction. Another very sad example is Abraham Piper, one of John Piper's sons, uh, who has close to a million followers on TikTok where he is intent on debunking Christianity and the truth of the Bible and and essentially mock everything that his dad uh, taught him and stands for today. And every time I come across his, his Instagram account, it just makes me want to pray for uh, the Pipers um, and his mom and dad, who obviously are grieved by the waywardness of their son. And then you have the music industry. Hillsong's Marty Sampson, Hawk Nelson's John Steingart, DC Talk's Kevin Max, and maybe uh, more closer to home here, Cademan's Call, uh, Derek Webb. I mention that because um, 
some of you that, you know, if you grew up here in Houston, you're familiar with that band that I think became very popular down uh, First, First Baptist, uh, Houston First Baptist. Um, but uh, he, Derek Webb, who was their main songwriter, recently made the headlines for his music video, Boys Will Be Girls, from his new album, The Jesus Hypothesis. And what is so shocking uh, about this and tragic is that one time Webb was an outspoken apologist for Reformed theology. And that's why many, many of us were drawn to his music. And now he's a bold advocate for gender transition and a strong supporter of the LGBTQ movement. And in the, the video of Boys Will Be Girls, he undergoes his own drag queen makeover and is accompanied by a cross-dressing singer-songwriter named Flamey Grant. You may have heard of him. Um, Webb told a, a recent interview that he thinks that drag queens can teach Christians about love and the incarnation of God. I'll, I'll let you hear his own words. Quote, he says, People say you can see Jesus in the lives and actions of people who claim to follow him. I have followed him right into a wig and a dress. There is something about the experience of being put in drag by Flamey Grant that did feel incarnational to me, and I think that's a great analogy to the work that Jesus did. End quote. Now, it's egregious to see a, a grown man dress and act like a woman, but when Jesus gets dragged into it, it's downright blasphemous. And some would have us believe that what we're seeing is a, a new reformation and that these bold individuals should be likened to Martin Luther and even Jesus himself since after all they were the original deconstructionists. And so what began as a, a trendy hashtag has grown into a deceptive, dangerous movement that sh threatens to shipwreck the faith of many unsuspecting, undiscerning Christians. And I think what makes this this movement so subtle and so scary is that it comes from within the church rather than outside the church. Typically, we have our guard up when it comes to the sinful beliefs and, and practices in the world. But sadly, we tend to let our guards down when it comes to the beliefs and practices going on in the evangelical world. False teachers masquerading as Christian Preachers and artists and authors are rampant in the church today, and it's much harder to recognize the error of their words and their ways than what the world is saying and doing that doesn't line up with the Bible. And I think Christians are, are more often led astray by so-called Christians inside the church than by those who make no claim to Christ. Again, in this interview... Uh, Derek Webb was very revealing and he described his new album, The Jesus Hypothesis, as his first Christian and gospel album in a decade. And this is what he said. The, the album is about me going back and sitting in the rubble of deconstruction and re-examining and pouring back over those issues and I thought, who is this for if not for Christians? If I've ever had a record that makes sense in the Christian and gospel category, my God, it's this one. I put it there because that's who I hope finds it. In other words, Derek Webb wants you and me to find 
his album. And he wants us to, to listen to it and somehow benefit from him singing about what he describes as his divorce with God and what he scrapped from that relationship and what he took away with him through that experience, even though by his own admission, he says, quote, I have been a Christian at different seasons of my life. I don't identify that way currently, but I definitely care a lot about the space. He says, at the end of the day, what I tell people is that I'm not the person who wrote those caveman songs. And then he said this, which to me was just stunning. He said, what purpose, what, what, excuse me, what purpose who you, who you could consider trustworthy, what, what person who you could consider trustworthy and healthy still believes and agrees with 100% of what they did 10 to 20 years ago? Now granted, we all hopefully grow and refine our thinking over the years, but I'm not sure how trustworthy and healthy you would consider me if what I believed and taught was consistently changing over the last 24 years that I've had the privilege of being a pastor here. I assume you want a pastor who is a spiritual and doctrinal rock, someone who's unwavering and unswerving and unflinching and uncompromising. But whether that matters to you or not, you need to know that's what I want you to be. I want you to be spiritual and doctrinal rocks who are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but stand firm against the waves of trickery and craftiness and deceitful scheming that relentlessly crash against the church. The Apostle Peter was a spiritual doctrinal rock. In fact, that's precisely what his name meant, rock. And Jesus was the one who, who gave him that name. John 1.42 says, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And then look at Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus makes a famous play on words with the name Peter, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is Peter's famous confession of Christ. This is Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and the others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now some have interpreted this to mean that Peter was to be the rock or the foundation on which Christ built his church. Some even believe to this day that he was the original pope, um, that's not at all what Jesus was saying. In fact, he was playing off of Peter's name, which actually means stone, and he said, upon this rock, you're Peter, you're a stone, and upon this rock, I will build my church. What, what rock? This boulder-like confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what I'm going to build my church on. The church is built on Christ, not Peter. 
Some 30 years later, Peter explained this imagery to the Christians in Asia Minor who, like him, had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You may remember from our study of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter says this, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So he exalted Christ, not himself, as the cornerstone of the church. Now, we learned that the first letter that Peter wrote to these believers who were scattered all over Asia Minor was intended to provide comfort and hope to believers who were facing the coming threat of persecution from unbelievers outside the church. Now, the second letter, written to the same audience about a year or two later, was intended to prepare these same believers for the coming threat of deception from false teachers inside the church. And so the emphasis of, of, of 1 Peter is how to respond to hostility from those outside the church, whereas the emphasis of 2 Peter is how to respond to heresy from those within the church. The, the, the former is how to react to external adversaries, and the latter is how to resist internal apostates. And what gives 2 Peter a sense of greater urgency and, and intensity than First Peter is that Peter knew he was about to die. And he was also aware that, that Paul's death was imminent too, which meant that the apostolic age was about to come to a close, and after their deaths, many would challenge and reject the truths they had faithfully taught, especially those relating to the return of Christ and the life that we are to live in light of that reality. And so as Jesus' diehard disciple prepared to be executed, by Nero, he wanted to write one last letter to those under his spiritual care that would serve as a critical reminder of the truths that he had already taught them, that they already knew, in order to safeguard them from stumbling and straying from the Christian faith in the dangerous, deceptive times that lay ahead of them during the last days. I want to zero in on a few texts in Second Peter that I think reveal to us the theme of this letter or the point of this letter. And my greatest fear as an expositor is that I'm going to miss the point of the letter. And so that's why I try to work so hard to make sure I get that right. What, was, what, what, did, what did the Spirit of God, through the pen of Peter, want to communicate to these believers back in Asia Minor and how does that apply to us today? And so let's look at a couple verses that I think, a couple of passages that I think really uh, will uh, help you see, as they've helped me see, uh, what Peter was, was doing in this letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. 
He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Notice he says pretty much the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, verse 3, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts, which is a reference to the false teachers that he exposes in chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And then look at chapter 3, how he concludes the letter talking about, in verse 16, the writings of the Apostle Paul. He says those, some of the things that he wrote are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So this is Peter's farewell address, and the dying appeal of the man who Jesus called rock was for his readers to be rocks, who remained steadfast, and who stood firm after his voice went silent, and new voices sought to draw them away from Christ. And so I've chosen this for our title, Steadfast. One word that I think summarizes Second Peter. And what is Second Peter all about? It? Well, it's, it's stirring reminders for standing firm in the last days. Now, if we were to outline Second Peter, it, it really breaks up nicely into three sections, according to the three chapters. So in chapter 1, we see stirring reminders about our faith. Chapter 2, we see stirring reminders about false teachers. And thirdly, we see, chapter 3, we see stirring reminders about the future coming of Christ. Another way you could say it is this, that in chapter 1, you see, we see the certainty of salvation and revelation. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10 Peter said, therefore, brethren, be all, all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And then down in verse 19, it says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. So we see the certainty of election or salvation and the surety of revelation. Uh, in chapter 2, we see the certainty of false teachers Again, chapter 2, verse 1, but false teachers also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. 
So they're, they're, it's certain that it's going to happen. You can be sure there's going to be false teachers that, that rise up amongst you. And then chapter 3 is the certainty of Christ's return. The certainty of Christ's return, chapter 3, verse 3 Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lessons, saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so Peter goes on in verses 9 through 14 to affirm that Jesus keeps his promise. He will keep his promise. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Verse 11 says, all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. And then verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, in other words, since you can be confident, since you can be certain about these things. So the point is this, everything that Peter said in this letter, we can be absolutely sure of. And therefore, no matter what anyone else says, we can remain unwavering and unswerving in our beliefs as opposed to being unstable in our faith, which is the opposite, by the way, of being steadfast. And and notice in chapter 2, verse 14, he describes those who are enticed by false teachers as unstable souls. And then he even describes the false teachers themselves in chapter 3, verse 16, as unstable. He says, which the untaught and unstable distort. And that's why he's saying here, don't fall from your steadfastness. So in order to avoid falling prey to false teachers who who skew the scriptures, we need to to scour the scriptures ourselves. It's easy to be enticed by false teachers and carried away by false teaching when you don't know the truth of God's word. And that's why Peter wanted to ground his readers in the truth because he knew that would guard them from error. And being grounded in the truth is the key to being guarded from error. The best defense against false teaching is knowing the truth. I imagine you've heard the, how they train agents to uh, recognize counterfeit bills. They don't give them counterfeit bills to look at. They give them a real bill to look at, a real $20 bill, a real $100 bill. And, and, and they, they sit there and, and they examine that, that bill and every possible way, and they get so familiar with the real thing that when they see a counterfeit, they notice it immediately. It's easy to spot. And so likewise, the best way to protect ourselves from being duped by spiritual counterfeits is to be constantly growing in our knowledge of Christ and his word. In fact, the key word in this letter is know or knowledge, which Peter used some 16 times. Notice just a few examples, chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you, you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, therefore I always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them. Verse 20, but know this first of all. Um, chapter 3, or how about chapter 2, uh, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, chapter 3, verse 3, know this first of all. And then, of course, the last verse of the letter, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One commentator said it this way, unless we have a Christianity that is based on a knowledge of God revealed in his word, where we learn of him, and yet which is also rooted in a personal relationship that grows over the years, then we are liable to be led astray by false teachers. He says it is part and parcel of the Christian life that we are to continue growing in grace and the knowledge of God. And we must also keep in mind that there is a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about Jesus and truly knowing Jesus. Because only those who truly know Jesus, who have a personal relationship with Jesus, who have access to all that we need to grow in his likeness as we wait for his return. And so it could be said this way, a a growing Christian is a grounded Christian and a grounded Christian is a guarded Christian. A growing Christian is a grounded Christian, and a grounded Christian is a guarded Christian. And so 2 Peter is really just a call to spiritual growth and maturity, which will keep us from being led astray by false teachers. And the more I read 2 Peter, um, the more it dawned on me that Peter was really just providing a, a practical commentary on what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 12 through 16. Turn back there quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. A familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of you. Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about how the Lord gifted uh, the church with apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the working, work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to, the, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So Paul's saying, hey, the goal here as a church is that we are to grow into the likeness of Christ and, and maturity, a mature Christian uh, looks like Jesus. And as a result, verse 14... As we grow in Christ, as we mature in Christ, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by whatever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, the key to not be blown and tossed around by all the waves of doctrine and winds of heresy is to be grounded in the gospel and to be growing in Christ. 
Now let me share one more thing by way of introduction. Second Peter and Jude are typically grouped together in most commentaries because there uh, because there are similar similarities in exposing false teachers and, and examining false teaching. In fact, they're they're so similar that some Bible scholars assume that Peter and Jude copied from each other. And this is one of a number of reasons why many critics question the authenticity of Second Peter and dismiss it as, as a forged letter. Even though it, it clearly states in the very first sentence that it was written by Peter and that this was the second letter that he wrote to them, it says that in chapter 3, nevertheless, the, the authorship of Second Peter has been debated more hotly and disputed more sharply than the authorship of, of any other New Testament book. Even the faithful expositor John Calvin was not convinced that Peter actually wrote this letter. Just to give you an example. And perhaps that is why 2 Peter is one of the most neglected books in the New Testament and is not often studied or preached. 2 Peter, along with Jude, is referred to as the dark corner of the New Testament. One commentator said it this way. Second Peter and Jude lay claim to being the least, the two least valued and noticed books of the New Testament. Their special contribution to Christian living lies unrecognized and unread at the back of most Bibles. When we find part of the Bible that the churches ignore in public and that Christians find irrelevant in private, then we may be sure that the enemy considers he has gained a major advantage. We must recover these letters and learn again what these early Christian leaders risked their lives to teach. And so if you consider that the common denominator between 2 Peter and Jude is their clear, bold instruction on false teachers and false teaching, then it should come as no wonder why Satan doesn't want us to study these two books because they expose his servants. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul said to the Corinthians, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And he goes on to talk about false teachers. He says, but what am I doing? But what, but what I am doing, I will continue to do. Um, verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. The point is this. False teachers are pervasive in today's church. And, and right now, false teaching is at an all-time high. And so there's a reason why Satan doesn't want Christians to know what's in 2 Peter. And one man who I've grown to respect and appreciate over the years for his bold stand against false teachers and false teaching is John MacArthur. And in his introduction to his commentary on 2 Peter, this is what he said. Never has Peter's warning been more timely than it is today. The rapid advancement of mass media coupled with the church's lack of discernment has allowed doctrinal error to spread like wildfire. 
False teachers propagate their heresies via television, radio, the internet, books, magazines, and seminars. You could add to that blog posts and, and, and Instagram accounts and podcasts, doing whatever they can for their own self-promotion. In the process, their deceit lures multitudes to exchange truth for utter lies. To make matters worse, some in today's church, motivated by cowardly fear of rejection or misguided notions of love, are reluctant to expose today's apostates. Instead of countering error, they either embrace it or ignore it in the name of tolerance. The Apostle Peter, however, had no qualms about denouncing the deceivers who threatened his beloved flock. Peter understood that false teachers are the emissaries of hell and pawns of Satan, motivated by the love of money, power, prestige, and prominence. Because they are masters of deception, they successfully peddle the doctrines of demons to unsuspecting souls, marketing eternal ruin as if it were eternal life. The only sure defense against their tactics is found in the truth of God's word. Peter knew this, of course, which is why he penned this epistle. As we close today, I want to note that there is an obvious connection between deception in the pulpit and deconstruction in the pew. We started off by talking about this deconstruction movement, right? What's behind that? Well, I think a lot of what's behind that is the deceptive teaching the heretical teaching that's coming from pulpits today. A lot of these people that are deconstructing have been led astray by someone else who they look to for direction or instruction. I don't know if you follow Aaron Rodgers, like Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the New York Jets. I came across an interesting article this past week, and it was, it, this was the title, Football Giveth and Football Taketh Away, on Aaron Rodgers and the Sadness of Deconstruction. This was in World Magazine, um, and it was in response to the sad turn of events, right? He just gets... Um, his first game with the New York Jets, everybody's excited, and within the first few minutes of the game, he gets injured, and he's out for the season. And so this guy wrote an article, um, and uh, again, the reason why it, 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 it caught my attention is because he mentioned the word deconstruction, but also because as I, I've known that, that from what I've, other interviews I've heard about Rogers or, or, or by Rogers, that he was raised in a Christian home he grew up going to church, but he walked away from the Lord, he walked away from the church, and he walked away from his family. The last time I heard, he's, just, he's estranged from his Christian mom and dad. And so this, this article I thought was very interesting and convicting and encouraging all at the same time. Uh, this journalist, who I assume is a believer, said that after that injury, uh, when he saw he was watching Aaron Rodgers get injured, he started to pray for him. And he said, it seems strange to pray for this guy I've never met that the Lord would use the circumstance of his injury, which looks to all the world, especially Jets fans, like an awful nefarious thing, to draw Rogers to himself or, as it were, back to himself. 
I say strange because I have never met this person and know him only from a smattering of interviews conducted by others and also meeting some guys in Green Bay with whom he used to go to church. Rogers was a few years ahead of the public deconstruction curve and that he was the subject of a feature article that chronicled an experience he had with Rob Bell. Are you familiar with Rob Bell? He was kind of the, 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 the father of the emergent church movement that kind of came and went. And uh, he was probably most famous for the book he wrote called Love Wins, where he punted an orthodox view of hell and, and basically taught universalism that everyone was going to end up being saved. And uh, even people in his own church um, rejected that and left. A lot of people left, and he ended up resigning. And he's doing something in California now, kind of on his own. But anyway, so apparently this article says that Bell came to do his usual ethereal leadershipy question everything type talk to the Green Bay Packers, which led to him surfing with Rogers, which the article implied led to him leading Rogers away from the Lord and the church and his family. Make no mistake about it, people leading other people away from the Lord is probably the single saddest thing there is, and the Bible is crystal clear about what happens to people who do this. But tonally, the article, of course, positioned the whole bell surfing question everything experience as an enlightening growth moment in Roger's life, whereas as a believer, I had to see it as the single saddest thing that can happen to a person. He said, deconstruction is neatly summarized in Romans 1, 21 and 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. But then listen to how he ended the article. He said, this may end up being exactly the kind of prodigal son story the Lord loves. And it gladdened my heart to think that Rogers could begin to love the father because of this circumstance. That would mean that in God's economy, the circumstance of the injury would be the opposite of arbitrary or capricious. The injury, sad as it is, will allow him the luxury of time and self-reflection. Rogers, who was welcomed to, to New York with such fanfare, might gain his soul by losing his season's version of the world. And I thought, what a great reminder that rather than judging those who have deconstructed or defected from the faith, that we need to pray for them. And at the same time, we need to pray for ourselves and ask God to guard us from, from doing the same thing and to grant us grace to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that he would be glorified both now and to the day of eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for... Uh, your sweet providence in bringing us to this letter that is so timely, so relevant to the day and age in which we live. And Lord, it's sad to see so many people being picked off uh, from the church by this, this, this deconstructionist movement and, and, and really seems to be a kind of a fad. And, uh, but Lord, I pray that you would use um, this this letter, in our study of this letter, to ground us here in this church um, in the truth so that, we, so that we wouldn't be, we would be guarded against this kind of heresy and, and, and falsehood, Lord, and that we would stay steadfast and, and stand firm um, in the truths that uh, we already know and that we will continue to, to learn together as we study this letter. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.